Thank you, Tanner, and we appreciate your willingness to read Scripture today, and we appreciate your presence tonight. We're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 4. Last week in our study, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we were talking about and want to continue talking about the efforts that were underway to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. God's people had been taken into captivity. They had returned from captivity. There were three waves of captivity, beginning in about 605 B.C. and concluding in about 586 B.C. The Babylonians had carried the people of God into 70 years of captivity. And under the edict of Cyrus, the king of Persia, God's people were allowed to return to their homeland and begin rebuilding the temple. And so Nehemiah along with Ezra, both sought to encourage God's people. Nehemiah sought to encourage them to rebuild the wall, and Ezra sought to encourage them to cling to the law of God. In chapter 2 last week, we discussed the fact that Nehemiah had encouraged the people to rise up and build. And in verse 18 of chapter 2, the Bible says, Then they set their hands to do this good work. And so tonight I want us to think for a minute or two about working together for a common cause. All of us who are members here at Isla Branch, we have a common cause. And that is, we want to see the church here grow and be what God would have it to be. The only way the church here can be what God would have it to be is for all of us collectively to work together to work together, to pray together, to worship together, to encourage one another. And so I want us to think about that. And I want us to look at chapter 4 tonight as we think about working together for a common cause because one of the things that stands out in looking at the book of Nehemiah is the fact that God's people collectively work together. And as a result of their efforts, they finish the wall in 52 days, an amazing feat, and no doubt God was with them. I want to begin by, first of all, talking about their foes, because in verses 1 through 3, 7 and 8, and 10 through 12, the text speaks of those who were foes to their efforts. I want to begin by, first of all, calling attention to the critics and the conspirators. Look, if you would, at verses 1 through 3. The text says, But so it happened when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whoever, or rather, whatever they build, if even a fox goes on it, he will break down their stone wall. Israel, the children of Israel, were really surrounded by hostile neighbors. They had Sanballat and Samaria to the north, Tobiah and the Ammonites to the east. Geshem and the Arabs to the south, and then the Ash 
Dodites and the Philistines to the west. And so, in verses 1 through 3, the text speaks of the critics. And the Bible says that Sanballat was indignant and he mocked the Jews. And you can just hear the taunting. Listen again to what he said. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? And then Tobiah. He said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. And then drop down and note, if you would, verses 7 and 8. It happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed. They became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Now we think about their anger and also their intent to attack. There's a passage in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And so if they created confusion, that is, if the enemies of Israel created confusion, what would happen? The work would cease. They wouldn't be able to fulfill their goal of rebuilding the wall. And then look, if you would, in verses 10 through 12, we think about their foes from without, but there were also foes from within. Drop down and look, if you would, at verses 10 through 12. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. And there's so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. And you can just imagine the rubbish, the ruins, and the fact that they had to sift through all of that in their rebuilding efforts. And sometimes people get discouraged, don't they? And in their discouragement, what happens? They begin to complain and grumble and murmur, don't they? And so the text says, there's so much rubbish that we're not able to build. And our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them, when they came, that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. First, there was a lack of fortitude. I think about this attitude of, we can't. You remember when God sent the spies out to survey the children, or rather, when he sent the spies out to survey the promised land? In Numbers chapter 13, 12 spies... Ten spies came back and they gave an unfavorable report, didn't they? They said, we're not able. We're not able to go into the land and conquer the land. Why? Because of the giants. Too much for us to handle. Joshua and Caleb, though, had enough faith in God to believe that the task could be accomplished, didn't they? And Caleb said, we are more than able to do this. If we're, not, if we're not careful, sometimes it's true. There are foes on the outside that would seek to dampen our spirits and discourage us in our efforts to do what's right. There are those that would try to intimidate us for the cause that we believe in. 
for the work that we're trying to do. But sometimes there are those within, sometimes even within the church, that would seek to dampen our spirits. And rather than saying we can, the attitude is we can't. And yet, over and over again, the Bible tells us that with the help of God, we can do it, can't we? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul, in addressing the saints in Philippi, said that they were not to be complaining and murmuring or grumbling and murmuring, but rather they were to be children of light in the midst of darkness. And you think about the Roman world in the first century, and the fact that the church had been, been born into a cradle into which the Romans were governing, and yet God's people had the opportunity, the ability to shine as lights in that darkened world. So sometimes we look around and we think about the massive work before us, the task that God has called upon us to do, and that is to evangelize, to edify, to care for people in the world. And sometimes with such a daunting task before us, rather than saying that we have the ability that we can do it, we say we can't. Second thing I want you to see very quickly, and that is the faith of these folks. Note, if you would, in verses 4 and 5, a couple of things. First of all, when we talk about their faith, one of the things that stands out is that they were prayerful. In verses 4 and 5, Nehemiah, their leader, and you think about Nehemiah, he was the cupbearer to the king of Persia. And here's Nehemiah bowing in the presence of God. And here's what he said, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Don't you like to see those who are in positions of leadership praying to God? Think about those who are leaders in this congregation. They have the responsibility of the welfare of each and every one of us. And we pray for them, and they pray for us, don't they? Sometimes they pray individually. There are times when they pray collectively for the body here. Great leaders are men who are on their knees. You look at the family, look at the home. And go back and look at some of the great leaders in the home of days gone by. Abraham, for example, and others. Men who forged a great relationship to God. As a matter of fact, James said that Abraham was the friend of God. And so leaders have an awesome responsibility. And here's Nehemiah. This massive task before him. And being threatened by enemies. Being threatened by foes and those that would seek to disrupt and destroy his efforts. What does he do? He prays to God. Not only did he pray to God, not only was the leader praying to God, but the laborers prayed as well. Look, if you would, at verse 9. In verse 9, Nehemiah said, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. Note, if you would, the plural there. You have not just the leader 
of these efforts, but the laborers working together in tandem, hand in hand. And so Nehemiah said, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them we set, and because of them we set a watch against them day and night. And so I think about how when you look at the church today, it is a team effort, isn't it? It's not any one person. As a matter of fact, no one individual is bigger than the church. But rather, the church is comprised of many members, but one body. If the church is going to be what it ought to be, and if the church is going to be functioning at full capacity, it has to have leaders and laborers who are working together. And that means every leader, every laborer, working for a common cause, a common goal. That's what happened in the days of Nehemiah. So first they were prayerful, and then note if you would their position. Look again at verse 9. Nehemiah said, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, that is, because of their foes, because of their adversaries, those that would disrupt their work, he said, we set a watch against them day and night. Is it not the case that in the church today, that we are to be watchful and vigilant? And why would that be? Because as Peter said, our adversary of the devil walks about as a roaring lion. And what's his intent? Seeking to devour us. There are a lot of congregations all across this country. And then you take into account the congregations that are scattered around the globe. The threats that are common to us are common to a lot of other congregations. The devil wants to disrupt the work of the church, whether it be in Mississippi or Tennessee or Alabama or Georgia or out on the West Coast or up in the Northeast, doesn't matter. And so as the people of God, we have to stand watch. We have to watch out for the integrity of the church we have to watch out for our own souls. That is, we want to make sure that, that ultimately we reach our goal, and that is heaven. But first, there was a spirit of watchfulness. And then note, if you would, their weapons. Down in verse 13, Nehemiah said, Therefore I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall, the openings. And I set the people according to their families, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Drop down if you would and look at verse 18. Here you have a picture of their efforts. He said every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And so you've got one person standing watch with the trumpet. And then you've got the workers. And what are they doing? They're working with one hand. They've got a sword in the other. What Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6? Are we not to be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might? Did Paul not tell us to put on the whole armor of God? Why? That we might not ultimately fall prey to the schemes, to the wiles of the devil. And so we are encouraged to put on our Christian armor. Beginning with the helmet of salvation all the way down to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the Word of God is a two-edged sword. 
cuts both ways. It is an offensive weapon. It is a defensive weapon. Offensively, we take the gospel to the world. Defensively, we contend earnestly for the faith, as Jude said in Jude 3. So here were people that, that had any number of foes, and yet their tremendous faith. Note, if you would, thirdly, their fervor. Their fervor is summed up two ways. First, they were united in their will. Secondly, they were united in their work. Look, if you would, at verse 6. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. At this point, they've reached the halfway point, so to speak. And the Bible says the people had a mind to work. Note again verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. Because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. I want to ask you a question. What would prevent us? What would prevent us as a congregation from continuing to grow and go forward? If all of us have the right spirit, and if we are united in our will, and I think we are, I think we all want the same thing, and that is we want to see the church here grow and abound. If we have that attitude, I want to ask you, what could stand in our way? What would cause us to fail? When I began preaching here in 2007, I remember the first couple of Sundays sitting over to my left and looking around in the auditorium and asking myself, where is everybody? On a good day, we had a little over 100. And since that time, and look, I'm not saying that I'm responsible for that because I'm not. There are a lot of reasons why the church is where it is today. But if we have the idea that we have arrived, we're mistaken. We haven't arrived. We're not home. We're not where we ought to be. We're not where we need to be. We can't ever get comfortable and satisfied and think, you know what? The work's done. It's not done. There is a lot to do. If you look at congregations and you look at the history of churches, congregations will grow and then they will begin to die. Now there are a number of reasons why some congregations die. This past Thursday night, we did a program on GBN Live and we talked about how to revive dying congregations. I would encourage you to go to YouTube and watch that. Glenn Colley and Don Blackwell were on the program. And there were a lot of things that were said about trying to be the church in the 21st century. Nowhere do we read in Scripture where we have the right to compromise the message. But the methods that we use change. 
So we can't stay in the horse and buggy age when, we're in, when we are in the computer age, when we're in the jet age. If Jesus were here today, would he use the technology available to him to advance the cause of Christ? You better believe he would. Would he do everything within his power to be visible in a neighborhood? Absolutely. Would he encourage people to have the right mindset, to have a willingness to work together, to be together? The answer is yes. There were a lot of things that were said on that program Thursday night that I thought were really good. And I think that it's incumbent on us as members of the body of Christ to think about how we can best connect with people. How can we get the gospel to people? In order to do that, we've got to make sure that we use every resource available to us to accomplish that task. We're doing a lot of great things here. And there are a lot of things that are going on that are really, really good. Are there things that could be improved? Yes. Are there things that could be implemented that might even help us go to another level? Probably. Think about all of the talent. Think about all the ability that resides in this congregation. It's not, this isn't my church. It's not your, it's not any one person's church. It's God's church. It's not my work. It's our work, isn't it? So you think about here were people that were united in their will, but note also they were united in their work. Listen to what Nehemiah said. Look again at verse 6. Nehemiah said, So we, W-E, we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Think about that. The people, not just Nehemiah, not just a worker here, a worker there, a worker over here, but all of the people, collectively. I want you to think about something. The work of the church is exclusive and inclusive, isn't it? It's exclusive because I don't know of any other work like the work of the church. What is the work of the church? Here it is. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What did Jesus mean when he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations? He said, Here it is, evangelize. That's the work of the church. Second work of the church, verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Second part of the work of the church Edification, building up the body. And then you add to that our involvement in benevolent works. Ultimately, everything goes back to evangelism, doesn't it? If we are evangelistic and if we are edifying or teaching those who are members of the body, the more we teach, the more we grow spiritually. The more we grow spiritually, the more we grow numerically, don't we? So you think about members who are evangelizing, who are edifying, and then who are effective in works of benevolence. There are a lot of folks in our community, well, there are a lot of folks around, around the country 
that have needs. And let me tell you what, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I think as a body of people, we care. You think about the efforts that are being undertaken right now to provide gifts for, for kids that don't have, don't have a place to call home. In other words, they don't have a biological mother and father to live with. I appreciate those that have taken the lead in this effort. And I appreciate those of you that are willing to purchase gifts for these kids. That's just one good thing that we can do. So the work of the church is exclusive. The government in our nation, whether it be the president, the senate, the congress, they're interested in the physical and material welfare of our nation. The church, however, the work of the church is interested in the physical welfare of people, yes. But more importantly, we're interested in the spiritual welfare of people, aren't we? And so in order to accomplish that, number one, we've got to understand the exclusive nature of the work. And then secondly, we have to understand the inclusive nature of the work. Well, what do I mean by that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, at verse 9, Paul said, listen to him. He talked about how in, in the first century, in Corinth, one of the problems they had, there were some that were cultivating a following after preachers. Some were following Paul and some Cephas and some Apollos. Paul said, look, we are simply ministers through whom you believed. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. So in verse 9 he said, we are God's fellow workers. That's what we are. We are God's fellow workers. So in light of that, look again at verse 6. So we built the wall. Who is the we? That's the people. The people collectively built the wall. Look, it's not my work. When we talk about the work at Olive Branch, it's not my work. It's not Jared's work. It's not Brother Billy's work. It's not the elders' work. It's our work. It's our work collectively. All of us ought to have a vested interest in the work here. We ought to have, as they say, some skin in the game, shouldn't we? When you look at this as your work, now I understand it's God's work and we're his fellow workers, but when you begin to think about the church at Olive Branch can be something great in this community. Why? Because we have a great message. We have a message to share with people that are lost and dying in sin. And we need to do whatever we can to try to reach people in this community. God is interested in the growth of the church. Spiritually, yes. Numerically, yes. And sometimes people say, well, we shouldn't focus so much on numbers. I agree. Numbers don't tell the full story. But I know this, behind every single number is a human soul. So in one sense of the word, numbers are important, aren't they? They're important because a number is representative of a person. And a person represents a soul. 
And that soul is going to live one day either in heaven or in hell. And it just might be the case that you're the one person that could reach somebody for the cause of Christ. Think for a minute about all the things that we have going on here. And we talk about how we are partnering together. I had a conversation with a fellow Friday that had called me about doing some radio work. And he was talking about radio and television, and he's done a lot of radio work, a lot of television work. And I told him, I said, you know what, I really believe that there are a lot more people that listen to radio than you would like to believe. I told him a story about the work right here at Olive Branch. And sometimes we think, well, we're, you know, we're just plodding along, doing a little bit. A few years ago, there was a fellow that listened to sports radio in his car through the week. AM 560. I listen to it every day, I guess. Happened to be on on a Sunday morning when he was in his car. So he's driving down the road and he's listening to AM 560 and he's listening to the lesson, a sermon that was presented here. Rogers takes the sermons that are presented here, he edits those and makes them ready for radio. And then he uploads them to the various radio stations. So here's a guy who's driving in his automobile, he's listening to a sermon. And he said, you know what, I need to get in church. So he calls one of our families, Jody and Wanda, and he asked them, where do you go to church? And they said, Olive Branch. Ironically, the lesson that he heard came from Olive Branch. So he said, I'm going to go to worship with you. I didn't know any of this was going on. Didn't know anything about it until after the fact. So he told me sometime later. He said, I visited services here on a Sunday. And he said, you happen to be preaching on the second coming of Christ. And he said, I sat in the pew and wept. I cried. Because I knew if I died, I would be lost because I wasn't ready. He was baptized into Christ on Tuesday. Now you tell me we're not doing some good things here. We are. Could we do more? Yes, we can. I say that to simply say this. That man that obeyed the gospel became a Christian not because of me, but because of all of us. Because we made it possible collectively to buy airtime in this city. If only one soul were ever saved by our radio program, it would be worth it, wouldn't it? It'd be worth it. So you think about the efforts of Nehemiah. It would have been easy to have said, you know what, it's just a wall, it's not that big of a deal. It was a big deal. And sometimes we talk about the work of the church, and maybe it's the case that it becomes trivial and we think it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. And no matter 
how little you think you're contributing to the cause of Christ, if you are contributing, you're doing a lot. So I want to encourage us to join hands, to work harder, to work smarter, to be more fervent, to do everything that we can to be a light for God in this community. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for this day. We're thankful for the many blessings that we enjoy. We ask, Father, that you would give us wisdom, help us to be a light in this community, help us to do what we can to lead others to you. We ask that you would watch over us and bless us and give us a home in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ, believing Jesus to be the Son of God. Do what they did on Pentecost Day. Peter said, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. In other words, so you can be forgiven. If you'll do that, God will put you in the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And the promise is, if you're faithful until death, God will bestow on you the crown of life, James 1, 12. If you're here tonight, maybe your life's not what it ought to be, and maybe, maybe you need the prayers of the church. Could we pray with you and for you? Believing that God will abundantly pardon, 1 John 1, 9. Won't you come as we stand and sing?